I'm going to ask you to turn, we're looking at the book of Romans, we've been looking at the book of Romans for a little while now, we're going to continue this morning, and I just ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5 and from verse 1. So that's Romans chapter 5 and from verse 1. And here Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's just come and pray. Father, we thank You for what Your Word teaches us about the riches that become ours through the faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. Lord, help us to understand and to apply and even more to live in the reality of these great blessings. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if in your life you've ever received a gift that, that stands out in your, in your memory. Now, knowing the romantic natures and le le legendary generosity of the men of this church, I'm sure some of you are almost overwhelmed as those memories come flooding back. For me, it's a bottle of Sprite that I was given in an Indian slum. I didn't really appreciate its full significance at the time because I'd only just arrived there on my, my first trip. And we were there in the home, in reality, in the tin shack of a lovely family. And because of the support of our church in Scotland, the wife had been trained to sew. The husband then traveled around and sold what she had made. And they were better off, more secure than they had ever been. And their children were getting an education at a school that was wholly sponsored by our home church. And we sat with the whole family and, and drank our Sprite that one of the children had been sent to buy by our dad from a, a local street vendor. And it was lovely, ice-cold Sprite, and it was tremendous and a typical roasting warm Indian day. But then I noticed 
that only three of us actually had Sprite. Myself, Elaine, and the lady who was the leader of the local mission. Now, eventually, I managed to persuade one of their little girls to take half of mine. I think Elaine actually drank all of hers, but that's a different story. But as I, I learned a bit more about India during my time there, and as I reflected on this, I realized that those three bottles of Sprite may well have cost a day's income for these people. And think of that. With no fuss, they were willing to give a day's pay and maybe go hungry on that day in the process so we could have a Sprite. Maybe I didn't appreciate it fully at the time, but you know, I do now. That bottle of Sprite is a precious gift that will live on forever in my memory. Well, today from these wonderful verses in Romans 5, we are going to look together at gifts more wonderful by far that too often I fear we don't really appreciate. And that is the blessings that become ours when we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The blessings that come to us as the result of the new status, the new standing that we now have before God in Christ. So what are these blessings? The first is that we have peace. Verse 1, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word peace has its roots in the famous Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which means fundamentally, basically, completeness, soundness, an all-round sense of well-being. Well, you know, everybody in our world wants peace, don't they? We want peace within, peace in our hearts. We want peace in our relationships, peace in our communities, peace in our families, peace between the races, peace between nations. But you see, what the Bible tells us is that all of these other pieces are fundamentally connected to peace with God, that we will never have wholeness, we'll never have an all-round, interconnected, pervasive sense of peace that affects all our being and everything that we do and all that we are. We'll never have that until we first have peace, find peace with God. And the only way to find peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, is by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who died on that cross to win for us peace with God by paying the price of our sin. That sin that, that once separated us from a holy and sinless God, Jesus, who dealt with the sin that made us God's enemies, has brought us into a place of friendship with God where we now know His peace in our hearts. That's one result of our new status, our new standing in Christ, of the fact that we are justified by our faith in Him. That we have peace. Peace with God. 
the peace of God in our hearts, that if we just live with an awareness of, if we just live our lives in the light of, yield to this, will then touch and overflow into every other area of life. I mean, you know, if you just soak this in, that you have peace with God through the amazing love sacrifice of Christ. If you just soak that in, take that in, you know, then that must affect our lives. Because how can we live at enmity? How can we live at odds with one another over what are always comparatively trivial, insignificant matters? How can we do that when we know that Christ won peace for us at such a cost and that He wants us to live in peace? The second blessing of justification is that we stand in grace. Now, usually, when we think about grace, we're, we're thinking about, about God's love and its unique quality. We're thinking about that, about His undeserved, unconditional love made available to us as we put our trust in Christ. Now, that is ours in Christ, but here in these verses, the emphasis is not so much on grace as a quality and our experience of it, but rather, it's on grace as a state of being that we come into. Verse 2, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. And there are two things that are made clear here about this, this state of being. First of all, that we've gained access into this grace. Now, actually, a better translation than gained access would be have been introduced. That would be a more accurate sense, I believe, of the original, through whom we have been introduced into this grace. Now, that's a better balance, reflects better the, the biblical meaning, because you see, access might be taken to understand that we in some way take the initiative to enter. While introduced, that carries a sense of our unfitness to enter, that we can take the initiative, that we need someone to bring us in, which, of course, is the situation. For we were locked out of God's presence because of our sin. We were separated from His grace, separated from His love, because our holy God could not bear the sight of our sin. And it took the death of Jesus, as He, God in human flesh, stood in our place, offered up His perfect life as the sacrifice for our sin. It took that death of Jesus to make it possible for Him again to introduce us into the presence of the Father. It took the death of Jesus to bring us again into the place where we can know the grace of God, enjoy fully the blessings of God. Second thing that's made clear here about our, our state of being in Christ now is that we now stand in grace. Again there in verse 2, through whom we have been introduced into this grace in which we now stand. Now, the way the tense in which this is expressed in the original makes it clear that this is now so, not in the sense that we now have some occasional audience with the king, 
like maybe some nobles in, in days gone past who might fall in and out of the favor of their king, depending on his whim and fancy on their behavior, etc. No, but rather than this being sporadic or precarious, what we're told here is that our standing now in grace is continuous and secure. We live then in the sphere of God's grace. That is, is our state of being. That is where we are in Christ. We live now in that place where God is continuously ready to pour into our life His grace and all of His heavenly riches. Now, of course, we can ignore this willfully. And because of our sin, we can hinder our experience of the grace and the blessings of God. But, you know, that doesn't change the fact that as Christians, we are living in grace, and that we are only ever one true prayer of repentance away from enjoying as we should the fullness of the grace and blessing of God. So, the first blessing of our justification, of our new standing before God in Christ, is that we have peace. Our second blessing is that we stand in grace. Our third blessing is that we live with hope. Again there in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there are one or two things here that we need to be clear about right at the very beginning. First, that, that when the Bible talks about hope, this means something very different from our kind of worst type hope, which is insecure and uncertain, you know, like in Scotland, I hope it will be a good day tomorrow. Or as it used to be for me at one time, I hope Scotland will win the World Cup before I die. I'm much more realistic. I hope they'll get to another World Cup before I die. Rather though, you see, biblical hope, Christian hope, is certain and secure. Why? Because it rests on the promises of a God who is trustworthy. Second, we are told that we rejoice in the hope of the glory, the glory of God. Now, you see, the Bible tells us a number of things about the glory of God. First, it tells us that God's glory is wondrously revealed in the heavens and the earth that we see all around us in the creation of God, indicators of His glory. But also it tells us that God's glory has been uniquely revealed in Jesus Christ. One day, though, you see, we're told that the time will come when the, the veil of this present age will then finally be lifted. And then the glory of God will be fully revealed. This will begin when Jesus Christ comes again, when He returns, Matthew, sorry, Mark 13, 26, when He returns with great power and glory. And then, not only will we see His glory, but then finally and fully, His glory will be restored in us, the glory of God, that which in this life we have reflected partially, will then be completed in us as we are transformed into the fullness of God's glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, 
we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So, we then, who were created to be the image and the glory of God, that was our original position, but who lost that image and glory as a result of our sin, then we will finally share in His glory. But you know, it's not only we who will be restored, not just us, but our world, God's creation, that suffered as a a result of the impact of our sin, that everywhere in the midst of its beauty shows the signs of the distortion that sin brings. Our world will on that day have its glory restored. Romans 8, 21, it says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is our hope, the hope of the glory of God, promised by God, and therefore something certain and secure. The hope of what is to come, that we rejoice and that we exult in, and we should in the here and now. The fourth blessing that comes to us as a result of our justification by faith, of our, our new status, our new standing, in Christ is, is really closely related to this, and that's the fact that we are able to rejoice even in our suffering. Verse 3 says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that word suffering is, is actually a bit more focused than it might initially appear to us. It's not talking in this instance so much about the hardships that come our way just because we live in a a fallen and sinful world. It's not talking about things like illness and accidents, etc., things that are suffered by every citizen of this world. No, rather, the word that's translated suffering here is actually a more technical term that refers specifically to the tests and trials we endure because of our faith. The trial, opposition, and persecution of a hostile world. It's what Jesus was talking about when he told the disciples that in this world, you will have trouble. It's what Paul was warning the believers of when he said to them, you must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So how are we to react to these hardships? How are we to react to this trouble? Paul tells us here that we are to rejoice in them. But you see, this isn't about the, the kind of sickness of mind that enjoys pain. It's not that. Rather, this is about feeling the pain, not enjoying it at a basic human level, but recognizing that though God is not the author of our pain, yet that He is able to take it into His sovereign purposes and use it in our lives for His glory and to bring blessing to us. How does he do that? Well, we're told here first in that suffering can and should lead to growth in maturity. You see, this is what can happen. This is what's supposed to happen. If we, if we turn to God in our suffering rather than turn in on ourselves and then become bitter and angry. And, and the process is, is laid out for us here by Paul. Suffering, a hardship and trials, 
produce perseverance, that is endurance. And you know, we, we cannot learn endurance without suffering. Because without suffering, there would be nothing to endure. Then next, it says that perseverance, endurance, produces character. And character here is the, the quality of, of someone who's been tested and has passed the test. It's like the difference between a recruit who's done the training, who knows the rules, who understands the theory, and then the hardened veteran who's put it all into practice and actually proven themselves on the field in action. And the last link in this chain is hope. Hope. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And if we kind of tie this in, what we've just said about the, the hope of the glory of God, then what this seems to be suggesting is that what God is doing in us now in our trials in life strengthens and reaffirms our hope and our certainty of the glory that one day will be. So how is it we're able to rejoice in our suffering? First, because suffering can and should lead, as we've seen, into growth and maturity. And second, because suffering leads to a greater assurance of God's love. Now, let's be clear here. What Paul's actually saying in these verses is that trials and hardships, suffering, are the best context in which to be assured of God's love. The best context. But again, that doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It's not inevitable. Indeed, there are many who would say that it's suffering that's made them doubt God's love. And it all depends, back to what we said earlier, which way we turn when hardship comes. Do we turn to God? Do we throw ourselves on God? Or do we turn in on ourselves? Just follow Paul's argument again. Follow it through. From hardship, suffering, to perseverance. From perseverance to character. From character to hope. The fact that what God is doing in us now in our trials gives us hope, strengthens our hope of the glory that is to come. Well, what ultimately does our hope rest on? What does our hope rest on? Our hope of the glory of God. Surely, it's the love of God. It's the fact that the Bible teaches us and that we know through our life experience that our great God of love will never let us down. But how can we be sure of God's love? You know, in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life, how can we be sure? Paul gives us here the two major ways in which in life we can be sure of God's love. The first is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, and hope, verse 5, does not disappoint us because God has poured out our, His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. So, what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit, who's been given 
to all believers. For remember, we're looking here at the, the blessings that come to us as a result of our new standing in Christ. That one of the distinctive ministries of the Spirit is that He pours God's love into our hearts. When we, we set this, though, in the context here of, of trials and tribulations, hardship and sufferings, then I believe what this is saying is that God, by His Spirit, is ready and wants to give us a continuous, ongoing sense of His love for us. He wants us to know that. But that in times of particular need, in those darkest times and severest trials of our lives, that then God is ready to draw near to us in a special way and then pour His love into our hearts in abundance. If only again, we're ready to turn and ready to open our hearts to Him. And, and this is something that, that to some degree, a little degree, I have experienced in my life. For I have to confess, you know, I'm a little bit cynical by nature. I definitely am. And I remember over the years hearing people share on a number of occasions how when they were going through a particularly tough time in their life. And how then when they, they got to the end of themselves, that then as they threw themselves on God, God drew near and poured His love in and carried them through. Now, sadly, I have to say in my cynicism, there were times when I wondered a bit about this. You know, is this really true? Or is this just people trotting out evangelical cliches, saying what they know people want them to say. And then I went through, in a dark period in my life, a trial that was sadly brought to me by the people of God. And I really did reach the end of myself, end of my resources, the end of my strength. You know, I did no answers, nothing to say. And it was the most terrible, and yet at the same time, the most wonderful time of my life. Because God did draw near. And God did carry me through. God did pour His life into my heart. Now, in the weakness of the flesh, I want to be clear, I wouldn't want to go through that again. But spiritually, it was wonderful. It truly was. The other reason Paul gives us for being sure of God's love is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, verse 6 to 8 you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, that gives us, doesn't it, a pretty comprehensive picture of, of our situation outside of Christ. Sinners who've turned their back on righteousness, fallen short of God's standards, and missed the mark. Ungodly. Men and women who instead of loving God as we were created to do and reflecting His glory, instead have turned our back on Him. And so in verse 10, we're told that we were God's enemies. You know, we had little time for God. We do outside of Christ. 
But more important than that, because of our sin, God who made us because He wants to know us and love us, because of His holy hatred, though, of sin, could have no fellowship with us. And in addition to all this, we were powerless. Verse 6, powerless. We could do nothing about our situation. I mean, how as sinners could we do anything? What could we sacrifice to atone for our sin? Because whatever we do, whatever we try to offer, is always tainted by that sin. But it was for us. For us. While we were in this situation, that Jesus Christ died. For guilty, powerless, godless sinners, it was for us that Christ died. It was for us that Christ offered His perfect, sinless life as the payment for our sin. This is the amazing love, the amazing grace demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget on one occasion hearing Peter Barber say something along the lines of that we need to set the things in life that we cannot understand in the context of the cross of Christ, of what we do know about the greatness of God's love for us, and that when we do that, we can go on trusting and even, yes, rejoicing, not in a superficial way, but rejoicing in the midst of our suffering. So as a result then of our new standing before God in Christ, first, we have peace. Second, we stand in grace. Third, we live with hope. Fourth, we rejoice even in suffering. And fifth, we know salvation. Verse 9 and 10. Since we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Now, now what we have here is an example of the tension that we find really throughout the New Testament, the tension between the now and the not yet. The tension between what Christ has accomplished at His first coming and what remains to be fulfilled at the second coming. And this relates here, and it does, it relates to salvation in that, yes, we have been saved by Christ from the guilt of sin and from the judgment of God upon our sin. But no, we have not yet finally been delivered from indwelling sin nor have we been given new bodies in a new world. Now, you see, here in these verses, Paul is focusing on what is to come in our salvation. He's focusing on the future of blessing of salvation. And first it is that we shall be saved from God's wrath in verse 9. Now, of course, we are saved from God's wrath now in the sense that Christ's sacrifice has turned that from us. But what this is about, though. This is about the day of God's final judgment. Romans 2, 5, the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day, we're told here, 
we will not face condemnation or wrath because we are saved from that in Christ by faith. And secondly, we shall all we shall be saved, verse 10, through his life. For you see, the Jesus who died for our sins rose from the dead. He lives. He lives, and he wants his people to experience in their lives the power of his resurrection. To taste of that, to know that now in the Spirit, and then to know it finally and fully at that last day. These are the blessings that are ours in Christ. Blessings that we know now. Blessings, though, that are yet to fully come. We have so much now, but there is so much more yet to come. And what Paul is saying is look at what God has done for you in Christ. Look at that. Take that in. Rejoice in it. Exult in it. Then look and see what is still yet to come. And so then, in life, in whatever it brings to you, believe in Him. Trust in Him. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice in what God has done and will do for you. Verse 11. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to say thank you for all that you've given for us and for all that you've won for us through our faith in Jesus. Lord, you bless us in this life beyond anything we could ever imagine or deserve, and yet there is so much more to come. Father, we give you our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.